Tonight on Farage, a day of high drama, the Prime Minister finally does resign. It had to happen, but should he stay on in number 10 until the next leader and next Prime Minister is chosen? Could this be a big conflict, a new civil war within the Conservative Party next week? It's that we'll debate and talk about tonight with a range of guests, many of whom know Boris Johnson very, very well. Good evening. Well, I've been predicting it for many, many months. I always thought it was going to happen. I thought it had to happen. I felt in so many ways that Boris Johnson was elected as a Conservative, but governed as a Liberal. Uh, to many Conservative thinkers, his policies on economics and on social affairs were frankly unrecognisable. But in the end, it was the evasions, the cover-ups, the untruths, the lies, if you want to use that word, that did for him. And when the end came, as it always does in these cases, it came very, very quickly. By breakfast time this morning, the number of resignations of cabinet ministers, junior ministers, PPSs was up to 59. I mean, the whole thing was becoming farcical. It was almost sort of carry on prime minister. So the inevitable did come. Boris Johnson gave that speech in Downing Street. He said he was sad and yet in a very funny way, it almost looked in his demeanour that a weight had been lifted off him. There are some out there very critical of the fact that he didn't show any contrition whatsoever for what was said over lockdown and indeed over the Pincher case. Well, they maybe have a point. He also had a bit of a barb when he said it was a very eccentric thing to do to get rid of a Prime Minister who, despite months of sledging, was only a few pips behind in the polls. But he said the herd in Westminster had moved, and once it moves, it moves. The herd meaning they're all pretty stupid, really. But, look, that was an important speech for Boris Johnson, and I'm not going to criticise him for it. Uh, he's, he's actually been through a pretty tough three years, and we'll talk about that and examine that. But, and here's the point, he fully intends to stay in number 10 with a newly appointed cabinet, and he intends to be there until the Conservative leadership contest is over. Already, there are some speaking out. Lord Frost says he should go now, as he's lost the confidence of the party in Parliament. John Major wants him gone. Dominic Cummings says the guy's a maniac. Leave him in Downing Street for another 10 weeks, and goodness knows what havoc he might wreak. And so I want to debate tonight with you, the audience, and with my guests, should he go now? My own feeling is no. My own feeling is don't kick a man when he's down. Yes, I've had very big policy disagreements with Boris Johnson, but I want to say this. His intervention in the referendum campaign, and it may have come relatively late for those of us who spent a quarter of a century fighting for it, but his, his involvement in that campaign was important. Equally, his winning that general election with that big majority in 2019 was crucial. Otherwise, I feared we were heading towards absolute chaos and a second referendum. I honestly don't believe he's going to do anything crazy and stupid in the next few weeks. And I'm told by friends inside the Conservative Party that when the 1922 committee meet next week, they will whittle down to a short list of two, get it out to the members, so this can all be decided by the third week in August. So my view is he should be allowed to see out 
the next few weeks until we get a new leader. My fear, and my fear is for the Conservative Party, is there are many that won't let this rest. And after all, I guess they did resign on the basis that he'd lost integrity, he'd lost trust. And you may well see, come next week, another bout of Tory Civil War style infighting. We will see. Joining me is GB News's political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, just a reflection. 2016, David Cameron goes to the podium, resigns as Prime Minister. 2019, Theresa May goes to the podium, resigns as Prime Minister, and now it happens again today. Three Conservative Prime Ministers it's resigning in six years. Quite extraordinary. Incredible. Uh, as someone points out today, we think it's Ted Heath who's potentially the last Prime Minister who went into Downing Street having won an election and left Downing Street having lost an election. Every other Prime Minister since has either gone in on the sly or been kind of resigned and booted out that way, not through popular public opinion. The, the Conservative Party, quite incredibly, have gone through an incredibly tumultuous period. And mm. I think what we need to step back today and think about is, you know, last year, not even last year, earlier on this year, this was a sense that this Prime Minister had an 80-seat majority, the largest majority a Conservative government had had since the 1980s under Thatcher, that this was Johnson's decade. Not that he was going to be around for one term, he's going to be around for two terms. He yeah. obviously slightly jokingly talked about being around to the 2030s. And yet now it is all over. He is in tenure terms, essentially in the categories of the Gordon Browns, the Theresa Mays and the, and the Callahans, the Jim Callahans. And that is a personal bitter blow to a man who frankly has spent his entire life trying to this get into the job. This was what his whole life was aimed at. Yeah. And, 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 he, and he said today, I'm leaving the greatest job in the world. Indeed. And, and, and whatever you think about him, the worst thing about it is he's brought it about him. He's got no one else to blame but They've himself. They've really been unforced errors, haven't they? Yes. I mean, it, and it started with the Owen Patterson affair, completely misjudged that. Then mm. what everyone thinks about Partygate, the way it was handled... The kind of obfuscation yeah. Yeah. and not being yeah. honest about it yeah. did enormous damage. And then it was the same typecast when it came to the Chris Pincher affair. So, you know, this is a very, very difficult moment, clearly, for him. Um, I, I tend to agree with you. I think there will be people within the party who want to see him go immediately. Yeah. But we, we don't do interim prime ministers in Britain. We've never had an interim prime minister. It would make more sense. So do you not think we're going to see more fratricide next week? I, I think the calls for it will be there. Um, but I think in the end, the middle ground will hold, which is, you know what, mm. what we need to do yeah. is we're not going to go to October. Yeah, let's get a prime minister in by the end of August. But let's give the prime minister couple of more months, he'll go on some foreign trips, he'll get to pursue whatever he does, and as long as he doesn't do anything silly, we will give him that time. Darren, you put in a good shift in today. Thank you very much indeed. Let's go to College Green to join Tom Harwood, our political correspondent. Tom, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. So tell us, what has the mood been down on the green this afternoon? Are they going to allow Boris Johnson to see out these last few weeks? Or do you feel there's still so much anger about the way he's behaved that we're going to have more infighting next week? Do you know what? At the start of today, this was a question that was very much in the balance. There seemed to be a lot of momentum behind those MPs who felt that the way the Prime Minister had behaved over the last three days or so had almost disqualified him. That usual, usual ritual of presiding over the ensuing contest. However, 
really it does seem that that view has ebbed as the day has gone on. Perhaps seeing that resignation statement there, the reality of what is going forward and of course the inevitable speculation about who is next to take the reins, perhaps yeah. the anger that certainly existed towards the Prime Minister has, ha has subsided somewhat and it does seem like the majority view now, at least within the Conservative Party, clearly, is that the Prime Minister should be the one to stay in his place as this contest goes on, as long as this contest does not go on for too long. No, and the 22 committee, of course, will talk about the timetable for this next week. And I think there are some, I think Kwasi Kwarteng in particular, saying we, we've got to get this done as quickly as we can. And Tom, more generally, without naming names, because it's way too early for that. What are Tory MPs looking for in terms of the buzz down there on College Green? What type of leader do they want next? Do you know what? Every single member of Parliament I've spoken to here on the Green, but also there in the building, in the corridors of power, they've been talking about policy more than personality. And perhaps that's because it is so early in the game, or perhaps it's because they want to keep their cards close to their chest. But it is certainly the case, I think. It's without doubt that whoever becomes leader of the Tory party will be someone who's talking about a lower tax economy. Uh, I think one of the main reasons, and it's yeah. been little discussed, but perhaps more important than whether it was a, a scandal to do with sexual impropriety or to do with a birthday cake in the cabinet room, perhaps more than both of those was the sense of malaise that this government wasn't using its majority to be particularly conservative and particularly on economic policy, on GDP growth, on low taxes. Those were the issues that maybe swayed more conservative MPs' okay. minds. Just one other thing, though, would, that I've been picking up that people are talking about. It's uh, some of the final acts of what Boris Johnson might do. Traditionally, we see resignation honours from prime ministers. And we'll remember back to Theresa May's resignation honours, some surprises, a lot of political uh, allies, but also her husband. And there's a lot of speculation tonight if Boris Johnson might follow in the footsteps of Theresa May and perhaps give an honour to his wife. Oh, goodness gracious me. Tom Harwood, thank you very much indeed. Well, interesting, isn't it? What Tom's saying is that what Conservative MPs on the Green today are looking for, they're looking for a leader that is actually Conservative. Goodness gracious me. Well, I'm joined now by Lord Jonathan Marlin, Chairman of the Commonwealth Enterprise and Investment Council and, of course, former Trade Envoy. To Boris Johnson, you feel sad today, Jonathan? Yes, I wasn't trade envoy for Boris Johnson, actually, Nigel. I was ah. for, for David Cameron, in fact. OK. I yes, I, I mean, I think we both, in a way, would feel sad because you wanted to see Brexit done, I wanted to see Brexit done, it's, uh, and Boris obviously took us out of, a, a, of an impasse under the Theresa May government and started creating the activity we wanted to. It's not done yet, no. uh, and there are things that we both want to improve it. it but uh, so... Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're now into the unpredictable of who's going to be the next leader and are mm. they going to have the same views that some of us who voted Brexit uh, want to achieve? Brexit obviously is important. Finishing the job is important. Yeah. Completing it's important. All of that I agree with. But, I mean, let's be honest. Boris Johnson is really much more of a metropolitan liberal than he is a conservative. <laughs> well, it's big state, high tax... Couldn't give a damn about immigration levels reaching record, re reaching a record. Um, green, 
policy. I wonder how much Mrs Johnson had to do with that, but uh, where we refuse to produce our own energy that we need. We're happy to see manufacturing, heavy engineering jobs, steelwork jobs go abroad. I mean, isn't it time? Isn't this now, Jonathan, about the Conservative Party re-evaluating what it actually is? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And the conversation I had with Boris after the um, vote, uh, immediately after, was, you know, you have got to lay out a vision of how you see Britain in a post-Brexit and post-Covid era. Uh, particularly in terms of making Britain 10% at least more competitive than Europe and America in regulation and in tax. And I think it, he, he was going to do that, but he met an impasse with the Treasury and with Rishi Sunak, and uh, the, the, it was becoming a battle. And that, in a sense, possibly was the start of the resignation process, which has ended up in this really awful tragedy in a sense of um, Caesarian well, sort proportions. Of psychodrama, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it, by last yeah, night? Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, Julius Caesar has had it nothing easy on compared to this. <laughs> no, that's right. But oh. I remember Boris, when I went to see him uh, after the vote, he thought he said to me, are you the man in grey suit coming to tell me? I said, no, I'm not. I'm really here to, because we're friends, you know, and I, I, yeah. I'm a Tory loyalist and, and um, I don't speak ill about any of our prime ministers. Uh, uh, openly, but uh, he said to me, um, "Oh, this vote is nothing compared to what happened in Greek times, <laughs> where there were votes every other week." So he's got a great sense of history. That Jonathan, just on a human level, yeah, how's he going to be feeling? Well, obviously, he had ambition uh, way beyond uh, this very short period. Um, he, he is devastated, clearly. Uh, he was amazingly upbeat today. I wouldn't have been so upbeat that he, he was. was. And that yeah. is actually, you know, his personality, is, is, as you know as well as I do, Nigel, he's, mm. he's incredibly energetic, yeah. very positive. Upbeat, unapologetic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was Boris Johnson, I guess, all and, over. And, and you're completely right, that's him. And that is, what, that is the appeal of him. And if uh, he hadn't been dogged by the awful COVID, and uh, the terrible times that we've been through. Um, well, maybe if he told he, the truth a bit more, it might have been helpful. Well, he could have. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he when when been... you're caught, you know, making a mistake or getting in trouble, if you put your hands up and say sorry, yeah. people generally forgive you. Yes, he couldn't do that, could he? Well, he did, but not necessarily in the right order, if you know That's the old Eric Morgan joke, isn't it, about playing exactly, the piano? Exactly. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for coming along and sharing that with us. Um, it's going to be a fascinating period. How quickly can the party move and get a new Prime Minister for us? Well, it, it is uh, very important because, you know, we've got two weeks of Parliament left. Mm -hmm. uh, the 22 committee have got to get their act together very quickly because... Uh, they're going to have to vote for a, a new leader. Can they do it in two weeks? Are we going to be paralysed until September when Parliament regroups? Because obviously it's the MPs that vote for the next leader. There are almost certainly going to be two candidates mm. out of about 40 who are going to apply. It makes the Grand National look <laughs> like a, a small race. Um, and, uh, uh, and then we'll have that sort of awful period where the candidates go around and try and persuade the membership. The hustings, exactly. The hustings, yeah. which yeah. will go on throughout the yeah. summer. And um, it's really a, a, a terrible period. And uh, when we look at all the real problems going on in the world, it's not good timing. And as I've said that on this programme Yeah, before, I know you have. Although, in a way, if it takes place during the early part of August, there couldn't be a better time. 
Correct. of the year. Correct. We'll see what happens. Jonathan, thank you very much Thanks indeed for coming in. In a moment, we'll talk to some people who work directly with Boris Johnson as economic advisors and political advisors. And I'll wonder just how much damage did Carrie do to Boris Johnson? How much damage did Dominic Cummings do to the entire government? Well, I'm joined now by Gerard Lyons, who was Chief Economic Advisor to Boris Johnson in his second term as Mayor of London. You were an advisor also in his first term. It's quite interesting, before we start talking about Boris, one of the things we just picked up from Tom Harwood, who spent the afternoon on College Green in terms of what do Tory MPs want now. Yes. And they want a new leader, a yep. new Prime Minister, who's for lower taxes, uh, less emphasis perhaps on uh, some of the green stuff and a bit more pro-growth. I mean, you helped train Boris in economics. What did you do to him? Because he wasn't very conservative, was he? No, no. It, well, since he's been Prime Minister, I think there have been some major achievements. He did get Brexit done, but Brexit is a process. And even though we've grown faster than Germany since 2016, there's many things that he could have done. And indeed, the next Prime Minister still needs to do to realise the opportunities. He actually did very well on the vaccine rollout. Yes. And also, he was the first Prime Minister, maybe for a half a century, to really take regional economic policy seriously. The downside and the biggest challenge, in my view, has been that he didn't have an economic vision and therefore the Prime Minister Boris didn't stand up to the orthodoxy of the Treasury and the Treasury's orthodoxy is I still think one of the biggest challenges. Are they that powerful the Treasury? I, yeah. mean, I mean but when you're I'm just thinking this through you know, you're the Prime Minister You've just been elected with an 80-seat yeah. majority. Do bureaucrats tell you what to think and what to do? Harold Wilson, when he was Prime Minister in the late 60s, said that you can be in office but not in power. Power lies with the Treasury. In other countries, the two offices that are in the Treasury are split up. That is, the Treasury has a budgetary department and an economic department. But the budgetary department balancing the books mm -hmm. always uh, takes precedence over achieving economic growth. They don't actually balance the books that well. So I think the biggest challenge for the Prime Minister or Boris over the last few years has been his lack of economic vision. I think whoever succeeds him needs to really have a pro-business, pro-growth economic agenda. And that needs to be aimed at some quick wins to address the cost of living crisis. We have both an inflation problem and an economic slowdown that's about to hit us. Stagflation. Well, some would call it stagflation, but um, it is part of both of those. But the trouble about calling it stagflation is that often the policy response is to squeeze the economy. What we actually have to do is to have a tighter monetary policy to get inflation under control. Mm -hmm. And we need to have a fiscal policy aimed at boosting the economy. And that has to mean tax cuts, giving back some of the revenue that the Treasury, the government has got in through higher inflation. So there has Which, to be And in a fact, change. the tax take has been a lot higher, hasn't it, than they yes. anticipated? Hence, many people are now being uh, pulled up into higher tax bans. Mm. So I think there is a lot that can be done. And indeed, were the Prime Minister not to have been kicked out this week, my impression was that he was finally trying to get on top of this, albeit two and a half years too late. But economics never Boris Johnson's strong suit. That's right. Yes. You worked very closely with him. Yeah. You obviously liked him when yes. you did work with him. It's pretty tough day for a guy like that. That's right. Well, I went from being head of research at a global international bank to then working with him in his second term as mayor of London. What I found was that he didn't take easily to economics, but we would have regular meetings and he would sit down, get out his 
book as if though he was a journalist and go through things. And um, some people said that he didn't do detail. I found quite the opposite. Maybe it's because the environment in which we operated. For instance, one occasion I remember talking to him through the banker's bonus cap. Mm -hmm. And at the end I said, do you get it? And he said, ah, oh, I do. It's like when Emperor Diocletian decided <laughs> to try and control the price of vegetables in Rome. But he was a very, very good guy yeah. to work with. He was very personable, had great following. Um, on international trips, he really promoted not just London, but the UK. And there were some good stories from that as well. Gerard, you know, if you manage to get Boris Johnson to do detail, it's a very great shame you weren't with him, I think, <laughs> over the course of the last three years. We might have been in a slightly better position. Final thought on all of this, but important thought on all of this. Do you think today's modern Conservative Party has the courage within it to go for the kind of economic policies that you're talking about? Because I'm thinking back to Thatcher's time, when she had the Treasury against her, the media against her. I mean, the, the academics, again, that 364 economists wrote to the Times. Yes. To do the things that you're talking about is going to face real opposition. Do you think that this party has the heart to do those things? Um, yes, I think it does, provided it has the right leader and provided actually realises it needs to be very much appealing not just to people who work around here but very much out on the front foot across the country. It needs a credible economic vision. I would call it a three-arrowed approach, monetary financial policy, credible fiscal policy, but the whole supply side agenda. And again, reiterating the earlier point, is about pro-business, pro-growth, and actually recognising that you need to actually have some quick wins for people to address the cost of living crisis. But, um, so 5% cut on VAT on people's fuel bills would be an easy quick hit? I think that taxes on fuel and energy should be reduced. I think corporation tax next spring should not be increased. And there should either be an income tax cut or an increase in the personal allowances. So it's possible, but it requires the leadership to actually be looking at these issues. And one clear thing from when Boris was mayor of London, and I think this is evident in terms of how international people see him over at Ukraine, he very much focused on boosting Britain, taught realistic in many respects, but at the same time, instead of talking the country down, it was very much about positive about what needs to be done. And that was one of the great things about Boris Johnson, the boosterism, the yeah, optimism, and right. he was good at that. Gerard, thank you for Pleasure. coming in, setting out a vision that the Conservative Party, I think, need to follow. And wow, what an achievement. I mean, this man, Lyons, got Boris Johnson to do detail. Well, I've never heard anybody else ever say that at any point in time. Now, some re audience reaction from you when I asked this question, should Boris go now or be allowed to stay? Peter says, Dear Nigel, I can absolutely see no reason for Boris not to stay on as caretaker PM. Those who want him to go now are people who seem to be bitter and twisted. Do you mean Dominic Cummings? Why, why even, even while the media are debating it? Alan says, Nigel, we are so angry Boris has been forced out. We know he's flaky, but the way the MSM and the obnoxious Tory party, and you, meaning me, have been hounding him is outrageous. Very disappointed in you for going along with it. Well, Alan, I didn't go along with it. I was, I've been saying this for six months. I've been saying this for a very, very long time. You know, I wanted Brexit to be a success. And just passing a piece of legislation to say we leave with Northern Ireland in a mess, with nothing done to help our fisheries, with border controls, genuine border controls not put in place, that wasn't anything like the Brexit that I campaigned for and 17 million people voted for. But I acknowledge how important he was 
in that 2016 to 2019 period. Adam says it doesn't matter, but he's still there. Well, look, there's lots and lots of views on this, and there's going to be lots of passion on this. I just wonder, you know, I am, I am saying we should not kick a man when he's down. He should be allowed to see his last few weeks out. Now, Alex Crowley was an advisor in number 10, and of course, from way before that, you have been with Boris Johnson. He worked with him for over a decade. It's, a, it's an odd day today because I was there right at the very beginning when he was putting together his mayoral campaign in 2008 in the old county hall just down the river there. Yes. Uh, and, and here we are on the day that his, his main political journey has come to an end. Uh, I, I don't see any way back for him after this, obviously. Um, so it's a very strange day. And I th look, those of us who have worked with him closely, and there are lots of us, yeah. uh, we could always see the potential for something like this to happen. His weaknesses were obvious to everyone, including the public, by the way. Uh, but a lot of us t tonight are, th are, are thinking, what a missed opportunity. He has yes, this an 80 seat majority, 80 seat majority, the ability to uh, uh, communicate way beyond Westminster. Mm. Uh, he had the potential to build a whole new political coalition and use it to make real changes in this country that are so desperately needed. And he wasn't able to do that. And that is a shame because this country is badly in need of change and fixing. Alex, is perhaps the fundamental problem here that he doesn't really have a strong political philosophy, that he's in politics, it's a career, he was always ambitious to be someone, to reach the top of the tree, and it was more about him reaching the top of the tree than it was about achieving policy objectives and goals. And that when you're, when you're in number 10, and Mrs Thatcher used to say, in a crisis, back to first principles. Well, she had first principles. You could agree with them or disagree with them. But, but you know, I mean, perhaps I've been a bit sarcastic. Perhaps some of the audience don't like it. But I've been calling you a metropolitan liberal rather than conservative. I mean, what is he really politically? Well, I think this is the problem. Uh, he did not have a guiding mission. He did not have an agenda. He had, a, he had his fair share of slogans and phrases, yes, but he didn't have anything really substantial behind that. And the problem with that is, when the going gets tough, as it always does at that level of government, yes. he did not have a core agenda to return to. He did not have something that his supporters could unite around. So when he talked uh, during moments of crisis about, well, let's get on with the job, let's get on with governing, people would rightly say, well, get on with what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's that it, was the problem. What's it really all about? That was the problem. He, yeah. I, I, I'll give you one small example. Um, two weeks before he took over as prime minister, uh, I, I was in this so-called transition team that obviously failed to organise a transition for many reasons. And we all tried to sit him down for a meeting to dis, to, for him to tell us what are the priorities, because there's an awful lot that needs organising. We eventually had that meeting, and the meeting concluded with him saying, well, I want everything. And, of course, the problem with that, it, if everything's a priority, nothing is. Yeah. I, the one thing that shocked me in those early days when you were there, the team was being put together to go into number 10, I was genuinely astonished to see Dominic Cummings going into number 10 and taking a senior position. Because it had seemed to me in my interactions with him and looking back at the history and David Cameron you know, had warned about this guy. I mean, I'm not saying I always agree with David Cameron, but he'd warned about this guy. And it seemed to me to be just a gross error in judgment in getting Cummings in. Just how destructive do you think Cummings is? I mean, 
I'm looking at his Twitter feed today. It's vile. It's, it's uh, all negative. Yeah, but yeah, how much yeah. damage did Cummings do him, do you think? Uh, an awful lot because uh, he brought Cummings in because he panicked. He panicked because he didn't have a plan. He didn't know what to do. Right. So in that, and literally days before he, he, he took office, he panicked, he calls Cummings, and Cummings, of course, brings his own team in his own agenda. Now, I will give him credit. For, and is that when you left? Yes, I mean, because that's when uh, there were a, 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 a team of advisors who were meant to go in, who then suddenly were not part of Cummings' team and who therefore... Were, were no longer part of, you know, we were a different yeah. tribe yeah. Uh, and some of us sort of stuck around for a bit. The point is, I, I'll give him credit for uh, actually creating the focus and discipline to get us through that constitutional mess. Okay, he does deserve credit for that. But the problem, the, the longer term problem was Boris was never going to accept the vote leave crew to, to essentially use him as a vessel. He was never going to accept that. That was always going to come to a head eventually. And when it did come to a head, there was no replacement for it because all of the people previously loyal to him had been, you know, chopped by... You, you'd by, all, by you'd all crew, been right? turned out. Exactly. <laughs> and, and look, it's politics, it's life. Yeah, yeah. You know, fair enough. Um, but it meant that he was never able to, to, to have a stable team around him that could have provided the discipline and focus uh, that could compensate for the weaknesses. Fascinating. Now that's really, really interesting. And a final thought, if I may. Mrs Johnson. Because it seems to me that Mrs Johnson arrives on the scene and suddenly there are lots of multi-millionaires from Richmond who are having great influence over government policy. We have a conference speech where we're told that 30% of our farmland will be given over to rewilding. We're going to build back beaver. Um, we're pursuing net zero. We're not going to produce our own gas or oil or coal, which we could. We're going to import it all. And it kind of hit the British people that the cost of all of this to them of new heat pumps and, and electric cars and all the rest of it was frankly, you know, to the Richmond gang, absolutely not a problem. Was it Carrie that turned him into a Green? Uh, I, I think she had some influence on him, but there was a broader problem, which is because he didn't have his own fixed agenda, he would take on the agendas of others. Sometimes it was Carrie, sometimes it was Dominic Cummings, sometimes it was and so on and so forth. Uh, and so, therefore, that's why you have these kind of wild vacillations in policy, where one minute he's a, he's a red-blooded tax-cutting Tory, uh, and the next minute he's net zero, spend what you like, raise as much, the highest tax burden in history. Um, it's that lack of consistency because he didn't have a fixed agenda. Yeah, it says so much. Alex Crowley, thank you. A really, genuinely fascinating insight into the man, and perhaps into those flaws that, in the end, for him. Thank you very much indeed. In a moment, we'll talk to Neil Parrish, an MP who was turfed out unceremoniously. We'll also talk to Professor Matthew Goodwin about what now for the Conservative Party? Where does it fit on the British political spectrum? Well, joining me now is a man who's been through a very tough time recently. I know about these things. It's not easy. It's not nice when the press pack are after you. Whatever you've done, it's Neil Parrish, the former Conservative Member of Parliament for Honiton and Tiverton and a former colleague of mine for 10 years in the European Parliament. Neil, I put it to you uh, that when you did wrong, you were turfed out very, very quickly. What did you think when it took over 50 resignations for the Prime Minister to say that he would resign? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably in a slightly different league to the to the Prime Minister, Nigel, but um, I think it was probably the, the Whip's office that I was more concerned about, dare I say it, uh, than the Prime Minister. But, you know, you've got to get over it. You make the right decision. You go, you go cleanly, and I've got to get on with life. But I've still got the political blood in me. Um, I like to sort of commentate on what's going on in the world. So it's great to be on your show this evening. So, Neil, I mean, what we're talking about tonight is he's going as soon as the next, you know, man or woman becomes Conservative leader and Prime Minister. Do you think he should be allowed to stay on in Number 10 during that period of time? Or do you think he should go immediately and perhaps Dominic Raab or somebody else step up as an interim Prime Minister? Well, what he can't do is stay there until October and pretend, you know, it's life as, as usual. So, I mean, I think there's probably a compromise to be yeah. had, stay for a while, but then go. I mean, I, I suspect the party, um, hopefully, is going to get its act together, uh, get a, get the get the candidates out there, parade them, get the par parliamentarians decide who they want to put to the party and get on with it. We don't need to take until October uh, to get a new leader in place. The problem that, that no. Boris has got, too, is how, how on earth, you know, are the world leaders and everybody else and everybody in this country going to really take you seriously um, when you are going? You know, I mean, you either stay, as you know, um, Nigel, in politics or you go. Um, his, his sort of, his resignation speech was interesting, wasn't it, today? Because it was quite difficult to work out whether he'd resigned or not, really. Um, and I think, you know, he, he has got to face up to the fact that, you know, he's lost you know, he's lost confidence in the party. I, I actually have a, a lot of time for Boris, but he the trouble is he was quite good on the big picture, uh, but he, he, he became a sort of stranger to the truth in the end. And, of course, that's what, you know, got him. And it was no good for him keeping on. Well, I, I do the yes. big jobs well, you know. Well, you know, I mean, I, I've said this before on many yeah. things lately. You know, I think it was six times I saw him bounce into the into committee room 14 the house of commons saying i will do better uh, and and it's all the culture of number 10 well of course the trouble is it was the culture of boris in the end and so we as the conservative party yeah no absolutely out, you absolutely. know the cost of living crisis and absolutely. everything else and what did you make neil final thought please what did you make of the sacking of michael gove well, you see, I worked with Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for DEFRA, um, and I rate Michael Gove. Um, he, he can be an interesting character. Uh, but, you see, I sent Michael a message when, when Boris sacked him and said, well, now he's got a complete death wish. Um, see, I always refer to, to Michael as the Duke of Buckingham. You know, he's got, a, he's got a series of troops there, and he will move them on or off the battlefield, um, and he is better on your side than off your side. And so, in political terms, mm. it was a shootout, mm. wasn't it? At the the OK Corral. It was who got their gun out first. Was it? Was it? But was Michael Gove going to resign, or was Boris going to fire him? And you could see this was a, a real final political drama, which I think probably was the very final straw uh, for Boris. Mm. Neil Parrish, thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight here on GB News. Thank you. Six times, Neil Parrish said, six times the Prime Minister goes into Committee Room 14 and says, I'm really sorry to the troops, I must do better. In the end, they gave up. Now, I am joined for Talking Pints, because I think we need it this, after this very long day, by Professor Matthew Goodwin, academic, Cheers. political professor, commentator, 
Cheers, TV star <laughs> and student, very much yourself, mm. of centre-right politics yep. in the United Kingdom. Yep. You're the second person this week I've had in this written books about. We had Michael Crick in the other right. evening. Yep. Um, and you wrote, you wrote Revolt on the Right about yep. UKIP and the rise of UKIP. Yep. I, I just... It's so interesting talking to Alex Crowley yep. there a few minutes ago. You know, with Boris from 2007, all through two terms as mayor. You know, he goes through, becomes foreign secretary, prime minister. Yep. And Crowley says, you know, I mean, really what Alex was saying is that Boris never really believed in anything. I think that certainly came through in his premiership. You know, I remember we first started talking about British politics 10 years ago, uh, 2012. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point, we were starting to notice in British politics the emergence of a large number of voters that felt very unhappy with the liberal consensus in Westminster, mm. you know, that was basically pro-EU, pro-immigration, um, pro the political um, establishment in, in uh, Westminster and London. And what happened over the last decade is that that group really grew and they voted for UKIP, they voted yeah. for Brexit and then they voted for Johnson. I think ultimately, though, Johnson really never connected with the people that put him into power. And I think in that respect, you know, Johnson is the beginning of a bigger problem for the Conservative Party because whoever succeeds Johnson now, I think, has this really difficult balancing act. They've got to somehow hold those voters in the north, in the Red Wall, in Yorkshire, the Midlands, coast, coastal towns, small towns, and hold the southern shires, middle class, graduate, prosperous. And those two groups of voters are very different, as you will know from your campaigning days. Yeah. And I just don't see anybody at the moment who I think can pull that off. Did Johnson take the party down the path of being a social democrat party more than a conservative party? Well, somebody uh, wrote this week that one of the ironies of Brexit is that it actually ended up giving us a European model of the economy. It gave us a big state, higher taxes, etc. And I see some truth to that. I think the problem with Johnson, as your previous guest alluded to, you know, Johnson... I don't think really knows who he is ideologically. I think he's all over the shop. He's, you know, here one minute, he's there another. And I don't think that, you know, Johnsonism didn't really exist. It was the man with a few three-word slogans and, and that was it. Um, whoever follows him now has to come in with a serious blueprint for, you know, how they're going to fix Britain. And I can't think of anybody, maybe Margaret Thatcher is the exception, who's coming into power with an in-tray that is this daunting. You know, inflation, productivity crisis, low growth, uh, Ukraine, you know, list goes on and on and on. And they're going to have to have an ideological blueprint for that. They're going to have to have a coherent, intellectually sound vision. Thatcher surrounded herself with very clever people. Even Blair got a lot, lot of things wrong, some things right, but surrounded himself with some pretty clever people. Johnson, there was nobody really there. There was nobody in Team Johnson that was sort of, that got it, that had a, a bigger vision for the country. So whoever follows him. Did Cummings have a little bit of that in terms of wanting to reform the civil service, etc.? I, I think Cummings had a few ideas around, you know, trying to sort of build a technocracy, trying to sort of reform the civil service, but it wasn't very profound. It isn't very profound. I don't think he's sort of in tune with the, the kind of the realignment that is going on in British politics at the moment. And in a way, I don't think this saga has ended. I think this is just at the end of a chapter. And I think what, what is coming in British politics even now, I still think neither left nor right are fully in tune with a large chunk of the country. And if you look at the last 10 years, um, Nigel, all the evidence shows 
levels of volatility, the number of people who are switching their vote oh, from yeah. Labour to Conservative, yeah. Conservative to Lib, De Lib Dem, Labour to Green, has never been higher. We've got about 60% of people in the last decade that changed their vote. So we're not going to go back into sort of nice, you know, two-party Labour Conservative politics. If anything, I think we're going to just continue to see this remarkable churn that we've seen over the last couple of days and the last decade. Yeah. Lots of turbulence, lots of turmoil. And I don't know for certain where it's going to end up, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up with new parties, um, new alignments, new geographies. That, that would happen if we got a change to electoral law. Mm. Because under the first-past-the-post system, it's very, very difficult for new entrants. Difficult to raise money because their donors finish up being given bills for inheritance tax. It seems almost incredible, mm. but it's exactly what happened to many people who gave me money. Um, difficult to overcome the postal vote. Mm where, you know, the Labour Party and Tory Party have already huge numbers signed up. They can turn those votes out. It's not easy. But what I detect is something quite interesting. See, I think Brexit was about a lot more than just leaving the European Union. Absolutely. It was about, we don't want London controlling everything in our lives, that narrow clique, and we've touched on that mm. earlier on. But actually, Brexit, and it was really interesting... When we formed the Brexit Party and in six weeks won those elections in dramatic mm. style, our slogan was change politics for good. Yeah. A feeling that Brexit could be a fresh opportunity, mm. a brand new start. I don't think the Tory party ever understood that. And yet I detect, and you may think I'm wrong, I detect a growing appetite for proportional representation in some form. An appetite for electoral reform. I'm beginning to see it. And interesting, isn't it? You know, even people like Lord Mandelson saying mm. we've got to start mm. talking about this. Mm. Andy Burnham pretty much now advocating for it. The Lib Dems have always believed in it. And yet when Clegg had the opportunity, he went for a system that wasn't proportional, was, mm. pre well, was preferential. It couldn't be explained in a yeah. sentence, uh, which is why Facebook shares are doing so badly now he's there. Um, but do you think that big change is coming or will it be resisted to the hilt? I agree with you. That's why I, I mentioned the prospect of new parties, because I think on both the, the left and the right, I think there is a growing consensus that first past the post is, is not going to be sustainable over the longer term. I think if you talk to Lib Dems, if you talk to Labour activists, you talk to Greens, you talk to disillusioned progressives, you know, all of whom are sort of saying, actually, this system is yeah. not really working out. If we, if we do go to some form of proportional representation, obviously that is a complete game changer. I think also generationally, actually, there's a really important point. I think if I talk to my students about electoral reform, you know, they're Generation Z, they're born after yep. 1996. Yep. They look at first past the post as a sort of old fashioned system that isn't in touch with their values. And I think as, you know, Gen Z and the millennials continue to go through the system and a lot of decisions have gone against the, those, those generations, you know, they weren't happy with Brexit, they weren't happy with Boris Johnson. I wonder actually if this question of political reform is going to become much more prominent I going I forward. I sense it is. I sense it is. Interestingly, the Burnhams of this world think if you have PR, there'll be a permanent anti-Tory, anti-conservative hmm. coalition. Hmm. What, of course, they're not factoring is there would be a new UKIP-style party. 
on the centre right of British politics that would get millions of votes. That's my view. Well, I think also the Labour Party would essentially break into two different yes. parties. You'd have a radical left Corbyn type party. You'd have a sort of, you know, third way type party. The Conservatives would almost certainly break into two. You'd have your sort of one nation liberal Conservatives and then you'd have your sort of UKIP Brexit party type Conservatives. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe that would be a healthier place for the country. You know, clearly, you know, we're now coming up six years after Brexit. We are still divided. We're still arguing. We still haven't managed to get into a place where, you know, we all feel sort of good about the country. We're ready to kind of embrace this new future. And whoever replaces Johnson, you know, this again, I think is key. They're going to have to come into office with a serious plan here for bringing the country together and actually making the most out of the 2020s and the 2030s. They're going to have to think about what's the long term economic it's a big strategy. ask, isn't it? It's a big it, ask. It, it's, can you think of another point in British history where somebody has had a bigger entry than Boris Johnson? I think the entry in 1979 was pretty yeah. big. I think it was. I think the you know, the catastrophes of the 1970s, the economic, yeah. uh, particularly economic catastrophes, the downgrading of the status of the UK mm. uh, to almost nothing, a sort of, you know, sick man of Europe, as it was called. So I think the intrade was pretty big in those days. I think the difference is, and OK, we did have the Falklands War, but the difference is uh, we have China, uh, and goodness knows what kind of threat that may pose to us, ongoing war in Ukraine. I think, I think in foreign policy terms, uh, this is quite a tough place to be. I think domestically, tax-wise, no, I think we have been here before, but I think to turn it around is going to be very, very difficult. Well, I've got you here, Matthew. America, thoughts on America. I mean, Biden won that election by narrow, by very, very narrow uh, minority, minority uh, majority. We've got the midterms coming up. Yep. Are we going to see the Republicans racing back? Biden's approval rating just sunk to 36 percent, the lowest on record. About 88 percent of Americans are saying the country's heading in the wrong direction. Those are two pretty good indicators for midterm performance. I think the midterms are going to be very, very damaging for the Democrats. I think the Republicans are going to have a very good set of yeah. elections. And I think already you can see the key players positioning. My recommendation keep all eyes on Ron DeSantis in Florida. I think Ron DeSantis is a very interesting politician, uh, somebody who in somebody who I think in policy terms is much more interesting than Donald Trump. Uh, he's, you know, is he going to go for it or is he going to be satisfied with becoming Trump's running mate? Who knows? Also, watch some of the remarkable shifts in American politics. Hispanic Latino voters abandoning the Democrats yep. for the Republicans. Yep. That is something we haven't seen before. Keep your eyes on that as well. Um, and, you know, we've got inflation, economic crisis. That is never good for the... And Trump is still Trump. Trump is Trump. He's also still very unpopular in the wider country. About 60% of people say they don't want Trump to run again. About 60% say they don't want Biden to run again. Yeah, if anything, yeah. actually, American politics to me... Is it a worse state than ours it is? Looks, it looks ripe yeah. for an alternative. Yeah, it looks really ripe for an alternative. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on Talking Pints on this really... Once again, historic day. Hard to believe, isn't it? Three prime ministerial resignations in, out, on that lack turn outside number 10. Three in six years. It's difficult to believe. Been a heck of a day. I have to say, I've seen this coming for the last six months. I know many of you haven't thanked me for it, but it was obvious to me. And I think talking to people tonight who know Johnson so well, you can see the, the good parts of him, but in the end, the bad side brought him down. <laughs>